Everybody has an element of not being themselves depending on the world at the end. The people who don't generally are what I like to call assholes. <laughs> In this episode of Live Rich, Have Fun, Save the World, we're shaking things up a little bit. Recently, two of Expensify's directors, Joni Wang and Puneet Lath, sat down with Trevor Noah to talk about representation as part of our new video series, Long Ass Table Talks, or Lat Talks. This conversation on representation is the first in a video series that aims to explore issues relating to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and how they affect us in our everyday lives. Our first guest is Trevor Noah, the South African comedian, award-winning host of The Daily Show, writer, producer, political commentator, and actor. Since taking over The Daily Show, Trevor Noah has been instrumental in unpacking topics around race in a conversational, entertaining, and approachable way. And we couldn't be more excited to kick off Lat Talks with him. The 25-minute video discussion can be found over at expensify.com LAT, but we wanted to bring you the entire conversation here, exclusively on Live Rich, Have Fun, Save the World. I'm gonna kick it over to Joni, Puneet, and Trevor to take it away, sitting at, of course, a long-ass table. Couldn't get a table for three? <laughs> <laughs> it's our long-ass table. That's what we call them. I like it. Room for more to join. Exactly. That's exactly right. That's yeah, the you, know, whole you never know concept. who's gonna join. Yeah. Yeah. Happens to me all the time. Yeah. 15 friends pop up. And, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm like, oh yeah, I got the table. Yeah, at our company in Portland, it's a old bank that we mm -hmm. took over. And so we were completely renovating it. And we told the architects we wanted a really long ass table. They're like, great, cool. And then they come back and they have a rendering with like three separate tables pushed together. They're like, no, we want a long ass one, you were right? specific about wanting a long ass Exactly. Table. It had to be one connected one. And so basically we had to ask them for three or four different renderings until they finally, they're like, here's your long ass table. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you're happy with this. Were you? Yes, oh, very good. much so. Nice. <laughs> so we wanted to recreate that here. Just to give you some context on the conversation, Joni and I had this idea. We wanted to make diversity, equity, inclusion a thing that everyone owned at Expensify, not just certain people whose job it was. So we had this idea. We'll create this speaker series. People can invite guests that they care about, and they can film interviews with them, and we'll learn that way through like first-person stories. And so we wanted to talk to you because we thought, you know, you have a super interesting life story. Thank you. You also like tell it with humor and, and levity and lightheartedness. And so, you know, probably touch on some serious topics, but hopefully still a fun, casual conversation. I love it, man. I love it. You interview people for a living. I mean, any advice for us before we start? Um, no, no, I have no advice no, no. whatsoever. Because <laughs> I, I think everyone is so different. So I might give you advice that's good for interviewing somebody else, and then you use it on me, and I'm like, that was horrible, why would you do that? <laughs> so I've never interviewed myself, so my advice to you is just be you, and then let's me. see what happens. Okay, yeah. that's better than the advice my partner gave me, Sylvia. I, I what asked was that her. advice? She said, don't shit yourself. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's it a makes good one for too. an interesting interview. <laughs> I'll never forget that interview. <laughs> also warms you up to that's people, true. you know? You think so? I think it does. Okay. I think it endears you to people. All right. I'll just wow. be like, oh yeah, guy shot him. <laughs> Yeah, so let's get started. At Expensify, our goal is basically to live rich, have fun, and save the world. We think that is what makes a good life, and we're spending 40 to 50 hours at this workplace. Why not, right? Starting with live rich, we define that as basically a measure of what your daily average boring life looks like. So a rich life is a consistent, comfortable baseline. So I'm curious, what does your boring daily average day look like, Trevor? Boring average day, a day of contentment for me is waking up at the right time. What I mean by that is when my body wakes me up, not when I need to wake up. Just like a nice time. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, the day has already started, but it hasn't gone completely away from me. Right. So it's still a morning. I don't normally eat early. So most of the time it would be like a swim is wonderful if you're in the right place. You know, then a lazy day begins. You know, maybe you go for a walk, maybe you go for a bike ride, mm-hmm. come back, take a shower, then eat. Mm-hmm. And then I settle into things, you know, read a book, watch a TV show that I've been saving to binge, and then catch up with a friend or two or three or 15, depending <laughs> on my table size. Yeah, that's pretty much like my ideal nothing day. Nothing right. planned. Mm-hmm. Nothing can go wrong. This is just the day, and I enjoy it. What's it like during the week? During the week is work. And I mean, this year has been abnormal work. So there's no normal schedule this year. Yeah. You know? So this week has been, you wake up at work, go to sleep at work. I've converted my apartment in New York into a studio. So yeah. every little space is dedicated to my work. So wake up, start the day, get into the studio right. vibe, start writing the show conferencing with everyone on, you know, your little iPads and your laptops and everything. And then try and recreate the essence of what you do in a building without being in the same space as people. Yeah. And then just try and live as authentically as possible in that space. Yeah. And then we get to the point where we got to tape the show and then tape the show and then that's pretty much it. And then you start editing, getting everything ready for putting the show on TV. Yeah. And then you do it again tomorrow. One of the things I think is really cool about The Daily Show is like you have so many different types of people in terms of talent, types of people that you put on the show. How do you go about finding these people? What's your hiring like at The Daily Show? For interviews or for the people who work at the show? I guess both, yeah. Interviews is really simple. I just go like, who's interesting? What do you want to know about people? Some people, it's because they make movies or music or art. Anything we consume as people that keeps us entertained. Some people, it's because they're doing cool things. You know, Maybe they've started an idea or a business or, or, or an invention. Some people are doing things in their world. Some people are thought leaders. Some are actual leaders. So I'm, I'm always just trying to have interesting conversations with people that I either agree with or disagree with and then you know let the conversation grow from there. As for the people in the building, I'm always trying to grow the show's staff in such a way that the show's mind is constantly being expanded. I, I don't ever want to be in a space where the show's thinking is too homogenous. You know, I think we can work as a unit with many differing points of views and ideas, and it just it just adds a little texture to everything that you're doing. Otherwise, you're just like one giant monolith that's <laughs> moving along. I like having a group of people where we're like-minded in that we're trying to do the same thing, yeah. but we can think of a hundred different ways to do it. And that's really fun, because then you engage with people, you have a great conversation with them, and you go like, all right, let's try and make this project happen. And essentially, every episode of the show is a project. Yeah. You know, right. so it's like, well, all right, today's project, and so tomorrow's project, the gifts and the curse of that are you only have the time that you have. So some days, you know, pens down, that's it, and yeah. you're happy. And some days, pens down, you're like, ah, I wish I had more time, but you don't. So you said you don't want everyone to be like-minded. The only way that happens is if they don't all come from the same place, right? One of the things that we do at Expensify is we don't care where you worked before. We don't care where you went to college or if you went to college because we don't want to create these invisible barriers that push everyone to have come oh, from really the cool. same place. Mm-hmm. Is there any, any parallels with what y'all do? Oh, yeah, I didn't go to college, so I, <laughs> I can't like be like, did you go to college? <laughs> uh, I'm more like, did you go to college? Tell me what it's like, I've never been. tell me what it's like. It's interesting that you say that because we, we've never operated in that way. So I'm always trying to find people who have those differing life experiences. I'm always trying to figure out what the barriers to entry are as well. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, when I first took over the reins of The Daily Show, I realized that there were certain invisible barriers that are holding people back. So you go, the door's open, but then a lot of people can't come in. 
You know, uh, I, I remember we had a guest on our show once who talked about what it was like to live life with a disability. And she was saying she grew up in an age in America before there were ramps going upstairs and before there were, you know, elevators that would help you in certain places. And, and she says no one noticed. Right. No one noticed. You just get to stairs in a wheelchair and then you just hope someone helps you. And so if you live in a world where you don't need the ramps, you don't realize how many people can't come in because there are no ramps. And so I think we can apply that on a societal level as well in any company. Yeah, sure. Is you go like, yeah, the door's open. But how many people are blocked in just getting to the door because of the way the world is? And if you can figure out how to create those ramps, quote unquote, you yeah. start to create a lot more of a dynamic situation, I think. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of those times, the ramps help everyone, right? Not just the people oh, yeah. that they're specifically yeah. serving. Yeah, and definitely. And so it just opens the door for anyone to come in. Yes, definitely. Yeah. So when you're evaluating candidates, how much do you balance what their past experience looks like versus this kind of new opportunity of their potential, right? How much do you consider that in terms of how you evaluate them? Well, I think for me, in looking at somebody who's joining a team, I always think of what are you capable of and what do we need you to be capable of? Mm -hmm. So there are many things that can be taught. It's something that I've learned in everything I've done. I've learned everything that I've done. I didn't just know it. Right. Someone taught it to me. Yeah. There are some things, however, that cannot necessarily be taught, you know? So like being funny, I can teach it to you, but it'll take a very long time. Teach it to me. <laughs> <laughs> it'll take a very long time if you're not funny. Like it'll take a long time. But then there are menial things that anyone can learn how to do. I can learn about the United States government. I can learn about laws. I can learn about structure. Like you can learn certain mm -hmm. things. You can learn things in production. Mm -hmm. You know, you can yeah. learn how to make a television show. But there are aspects of the creative that you cannot necessarily learn. And so in that space, I'm looking for people who don't necessarily have the experience within the industry, but have the experience of life. Because you know, that's, that's what I'm looking for. What are your experiences in life? Because that's what will, I think, in some ways enrich what the show is trying to do. You bring that experience with you, and I bring my experience with me, and then we, we smash those experiences together, and we hopefully create a new experience for the audience. Is part of that going out and looking for people in other countries, around the world? Is it a global thing, or is it more from a U.S. perspective? No, I think it's more from a U.S. perspective in terms of locale, but not in terms of thinking. So. Mm -hmm. The reason I say it doesn't really limit us is because I'm a South African who's hosting the show. We have another South African. We have two Ugandans. We have Nigerian. We have British people. We have, so you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So it's like actually like, oh, I find the people who gravitate towards this little nucleus we've created, right. are people who go, hey, I'm an immigrant and I've popped in here. Hey, I'm coming from this country. Hey, I'm, I'm you know? Yeah. So we don't necessarily have to reach out and find in that way. We've been lucky in that the ethos of the show has created a welcome sign for people from all walks of life and all different countries. So yeah, because the show is based in the US though, I'm always cognizant of that. And so I tell people all the time as I go like, this is a show based in America. So it will definitely be biased to what's happening in America. And I'm not afraid of that right. because that's what I'm trying to do. Not dissimilar to a company. Expensify might be like, well, we're predominantly in America and we're looking to grow at some point, but we've got to focus on what's happening here right now. So that's essentially what I'm doing to keep the show as authentic to what it needs to be as possible. You know, you mentioned when you jam these ideas together, you end up with something interesting. And I, I think people generally kind of understand the idea that if you have diversity, you can create something that's interesting, but it's also just kind of fun at work. And I think that's something <laughs> that people don't necessarily realize. Like I remember we have this colleague from New Zealand and I was talking to her about 
flying internationally. And she's like, oh yeah, I was back in cattle class. And I was like, what the hell is cattle <laughs> class? Like, that's what they call economy over there, I guess. Right. You just create these moments that just make work also more yeah, it, fun. Yeah, it, it, it does. The thing that people take for granted with diversity is it is harder work. And sometimes I think people ignore that, you know? And the reason I don't like ignoring it is because then when people experience it as being hard, they then have an inclination to run away. So they go like, oh, what do we do? Run away. It's like, no, it is harder, but the upsides are so much greater. So I'm kind of curious, when we've been talking about diverse inclusion, how do we make Expensify a more inclusive place? Regardless of whatever our intention is, the reality is that we can't measure how successful we are unless we ask each individual person, do you feel like you belong, right? Do you feel like you can come here with being your authentic self, you know, not having to feel like you have to hide certain parts of yourself? And so at The Daily Show, how do you guys measure success in terms of, of course, like, great, everyone looks kind of different, maybe they come from different countries. Right. But outside of that, how do you measure success in creating a more diverse and inclusive workspace? Well, the hardest thing to understand is that you are still part of a society. So you've got your circles that expand out, you know? Let's say you've got your department, and then you've got your floor, and then maybe you've got the company as a whole, and then you've got the city that it's in, the country that it's in, the world that it's in. So a lot of the time people will go, oh, I want to be completely myself. I hate to be the one to tell you, there's no such thing. <laughs> you know, everybody has an element of not being themselves depending on the world at the end. The people who don't generally are what I like to call assholes. <laughs> Those are the people who don't move or change at all depending on their circumstances, right? But I think a general person who has a certain level of empathy will shift and accommodate others. If you're driving in the traffic, a car is trying to cut, you, you go like, okay, I'm going to slow down. That is generally what we're trying to do in society. That's how we move together as a herd. Yeah. And so what's difficult to figure out is which aspects we are tempering to move together as a society or in the company mm -hmm. and which aspects we're tempering because of a regressive point of view that society held. So are you being forced as a woman to be like one of the boys club <laughs> because that's what corporate culture has been for so long? Sure. Or are you being forced to just be like, oh, not an asshole? That's a different thing, depending right. on who you are. <laughs> a good example is like, I remember one time chatting to a friend, he's Malaysian, right? And so he's from Australia and he's Chinese, he's from Malaysia, and he said, we were talking about food in the office. And you know, people were like, can you bring your own food? Can you not bring your own food? Blah, blah. He was like, oh man, I, uh, I wonder if I can bring some fruits from Singapore. And so then I was like, which fruits are you gonna bring? <laughs> And I knew what he was doing because there's a specific fruit that you can buy in Singapore, you know? Durian. Yes, right? durian, yeah. right? And so durian is the most polarizing thing oh you can God. eat, even in Singapore <laughs> or anywhere in Malaysia. Or it, it, like even there on the subway, they'll be like, no, banned, no durian. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so what's what's interesting is we were because he was he was teasing me, but what we were laughing, we're like, huh, could you bring durian? Well, if you weren't allowed to bring it, would you say that's not cool and not inclusive and it's right. not diverse? But then you go like, but even in the place where it's from, they're like, no, right. durian is not. <laughs> and so that's that's what I think you, you, you have to work at understanding, yeah. is that there are things you have to do in a society to help you move with the rest of society, right? So we wear clothes. The only reason we wear clothes is because we've all agreed, all right, we're gonna do clothes. And then in Miami, people are like, no, we're not gonna do clothes. <laughs> That's and that's their society. Yeah. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. 
that's the hardest thing to try and figure out yeah. is how do you create an environment where everybody can be themselves in the most cohesive way where they don't have to not be a woman you know not be a person of color not be a black person not be their culture even yeah. but then also go like hey these are the things that you still are in a company I don't want to come to your company and be like, well, being myself means I only work one hour a day. And you're like, Ugh, you're fired. Ugh, come on, what about inclusivity? You know, you don't have any slackers here. Inclusivity. And so that's, I think, the ultimate thing that you have to weigh. It's kind of like it's about creating a welcoming environment. Yes. Right? Is there anything in your career anyone's done to make you feel particularly welcome? Oh yeah, all the time. But I'm also good at adapting, you know, which is which is a gift and a curse. What's interesting is I find people are more welcoming of you when you are completely different as opposed to when you are adjacent to who they are. If you come into a place from a different country, people are like, oh, different country. Oh, you, 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 would, you know what I mean? And, would, and they're very accommodating of that. But if you come into a place where you're from the same city, but you're just from a slightly different block, all of a sudden people are like, you should be like this, you should know this, you should, you know what I mean? They're less welcoming because they feel like you should be closer to them as opposed to being welcomed. Because they're like, I'm not gonna welcome you, you're from here. But nobody's really from anywhere in that way. Right. Yeah. So yes, people have made me feel welcome in trying to understand me. I think that's probably the biggest thing, conversations. Yeah. Just like asking, hey, what do you eat back home? What is it like? What's this? What's that? How are family dynamics? How do you work? What are you? Just that begins an understanding of how people are. Because I think oftentimes the issue that we face in society is not only the fact that people are not tolerant of others, but it's rather the fact that people don't realize that there are others to even be tolerant of. And so if you live in a world where you think your mode is the default mode, it is the normal mode, you're going to be aggrieved by things that are not like that. Once you understand that QWERTY is not the only type of keyboard layout possible, you start to go like, oh, I use QWERTY, but there's, there's another way to type, and I think it's weird, but it works just <laughs> as well for somebody else. Yeah. And I think having that mindset can help you a lot in welcoming others. It's just going like, oh, you don't do it the same or think the same or are the same. There is no one way to do anything or no one way to be as a person. I was thinking about also the on-air talent that you have on your show. Super diverse, there's all kinds of people that are on your show. Do you ever worry about how people, like whether the audience is ready or what their reaction is like? Oh, no, that? not at all. No, no, I'm looking for interesting people. Here's what I'm always looking for. People who can tell a story that I can't tell in the way that they can. And so it doesn't matter who it is on my show. I'm going like, I can handle certain stories because I'm me. I can also tell a story. I can cover a new story that affects women which I always think affects everyone in society, but you go like, this story affects women most directly. Right. And so society will be affected by that. But I go like, man, it would be fun to have a woman's perspective on this. It would be fun to have a woman to even have a discussion with about this. Is there to any guest you've ever had that still sticks with you? Like an interview you've done or anything like that? All of them, for different <laughs> reasons. Really, yeah. really, I've had, I mean, uh, most recently I had an interview with Selma van der Peer, a 98-year-old woman who survived the concentration camps in Nazi Germany. And here she was, this Dutch woman, Jewish woman who worked as a resistance fighter and helped people when she was 17 years old and then got captured by the Nazis and then was forced to make like gas masks and then left the screws off the gas masks to try and sabotage them and I mean risking wow. her life and then wow. went on to live a full life after that. And, I mean, this is a fascinating human being. She's 98 years old. Do you know what I'm saying? The, 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 the imprint she left on me as a person, because everything in her life was an extreme challenge that I can't even imagine. 
having those conversations, having those people, whether it's the guests or the people I choose to have on the show with me, is a conscious decision. Because in terms of the people who are on the show with me, I don't just go, is the audience ready? I sometimes go like, man, I'm sure there's so many people who are waiting. So many people are watching TV and they're just like, oh man, I wish someone would tell a joke about my world or my thing or my food or my culture or my life or who I am. I know I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. I remember the first time I saw a South African in a movie was, I think it was Lethal Weapon. And they were racist and they were like stealing diamonds, <laughs> but I was still happy, <laughs> you know? I remember it was like, you know, it was Danny Glover and it was Mel Gibson and the guy was like, the bloody diamonds. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> South Africa. <laughs> Those small things make a difference. Yeah. And so I, I know what that's like. You know, I remember watching Coming to America and I was like, yeah, I don't know which country they're from, but I feel like they're from Africa. This is yeah. cool. And so I think that's cool to have as well. You know, as an outward facing expression of the fact that you are welcoming of everybody. I mean, I've experienced that. When I was growing up, there were never any Indian Americans on TV. Like, oh, yeah. You, know, you had Bollywood, but in American TV, there were right. no. But now there's tons of them, yes. or at least yeah. more of them. Yes. It's awesome. I feel like Lucy Liu maybe was the first one that I recognized when watching Charlie's Angels. Like, yes. Oh, that's cool. What a badass. Right. You yeah. know? Right. It's like so different than anything else you see on TV. Yeah. Switching gears a little bit, I remember in a past interview, you've mentioned comedy is a lot of trial and error, right? But of course, we live in this environment that we live in today with like things like cancel culture and all that fun stuff. And so I'm kind of curious, how do you create a environment at The Daily Show that helps give people the grace to make mistakes and maybe go take that extra step and let them fail and learn? Well, the first thing I do is not subscribe to a lot of the propaganda around what's actually happening. A lot of people will terrify you with phrases like cancel culture. The cancel culture is run amok. You can't say anything these days. These are always people who are saying the thing. Right. They're saying it. And they're like, you can't say anything, but you're saying it. Yeah, but you can't say it, but you're saying it. I understand what people are experiencing, and I understand why it's great to have that attitude in the media. But really, I break it down into three core things that are happening. When people term cancel culture, I think it's too broad. We have criticism, we have accountability, and then we have what I like to call roasting. Those are the three things that are happening to people. People are being criticized for something they've said or something that they've done. This is as old as time, right? Before we had Twitter, people used to write letters to like broadcast networks, you know, and then yeah. they would complain. I did not like that Johnny Carson had a tiger on his show, <laughs> right? And then they would send the letter in. Yeah. That was Twitter. It's just that we didn't have a platform that would amplify that feeling and connect with others who may feel the same or not. But criticism always existed, mm -hmm. you know? The same thing goes for accountability. We live in a world where now there are people who go like, Harvey Weinstein was canceled. No, Harvey Weinstein was not canceled. <laughs> no, he was indicted. There's a difference. He was convicted, all right? This, that's not canceling. If a person goes to court for something, that's not canceling. <laughs> Let's not get these things mixed up. Yeah. And then there's roasting. Sometimes you just get roasted, you know? Sometimes you say a thing and people are just gonna mock you for what you said. Yeah. It's the same as like baseball pitchers. You know when people go out and throw their first pitch in a baseball game? Yeah. And then they get roasted afterwards. They're not getting canceled. Right. They're just like, wow, you threw the ball in like the wrong direction. You threw it at the crowd. <laughs> that's roasting and that's what happens online. Because we live in an online culture, it's hard to figure out what each one is. Yeah. So you can't tell from the tone. I could be roasting you. Right. And then you could jump in and be like, yeah, Trevor, let's hold him accountable. I'm like, whoa, I was just roasting him. I, I didn't even think that was that serious. Yeah. You know? 
I'll tease someone online sometimes for mixing up there and there. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I'll just be like, meh. And then someone will be like, yeah. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm not. That maybe is part of the issue. We live in a, in a world where we are affected by a social media where we are unable to completely and accurately ascertain people's tone. In many ways, think of Twitter the same way, like a car horn. Car horns don't have degrees, right. you know? I wish there was like a little setting where you could be like, well, I just want a, a soft one for this person, and you know, because they're not crashing my car, and then a hard one for that one because there's going to be an accident. If we live in a culture and a society where there is no measure of tone, we're in a dangerous place, which is where we are right now. If I meet you on the sidewalk and you're on your phone and you're blocking my path, I can say in a nice way, excuse me, can I get by? And you know I'm not fighting with you. You get what I'm saying? I can say, watch out, and you know that I'm trying to protect you. Online, we don't have tone. So online, it's just like, excuse me, get out of the way! <laughs> you know, watch out! And it's just, that's how every interaction is perceived by people because we don't know each other. Communication right. requires context. And so how do I create, it's a very long-winded way to answer your question, but how do I create an environment where there is grace? I, I try and create context for everything that we're doing. Mm. I try and create it in the building with my team. I go like, hey man, let's try and create a safe space of context for knowing each other. I'm not trying to hurt you. You're not trying to hurt me. You have an opinion, you have an idea. Let's share them and let's play with it. And as a show, we're doing the same thing. As we grow with our audience, they go, okay, we have context for who Trevor is. He doesn't want to kill all the panda bears, even though he said that in a joke. <laughs> it's a joke. Yeah. And with context, the audience slowly understands that. And so that's how I try and create that in my world. Yeah. Yeah. We have this philosophy at Expensify where our goal is that everyone that works there works there for the rest of their lives. That's the environment we're trying to create. And our CEO always says that the biggest risk of the company is that we forget each other are humans and we just start to hate each other mm -hmm, over time. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the scary things about this pandemic is you're not in front of each other in person, you know, bumping elbows and developing some right, of context. Right. And so it's scary. Like, I get mad sometimes at people, you know, you're talking on chat or over Zoom. Yeah, because you have it's the subtle body language that we lack now. That's what we've lost. Yeah. And that's what social media has robbed us of. But that's what we lost over the last year of the pandemic. Subtle movements in our bodies that tell the other person they're safe. That's what human beings have right. done for as long as we've existed. We don't have that anymore. Yeah. And so when I send you an email and I'm just like, hey, regarding that, you see what I mean? I was just <laughs> yeah. like, oh, is he fighting with me? And I'm like, no, that was, you know, if I respond and I'm like, sounds good. He's like, what, sounds good? Or does it sound good sarcastically? Or is he unhappy? And we, we, exactly. That's why I always exactly. add three exclamation points just in case, right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so we talked about Live Rich a little bit, right? And Live Rich is this idea of comfortable baseline day to day. So the second of our life goals is have fun. And have fun is not like Netflix and chill, have fun. We're talking about like, you know, bucket list moments, memories, creating fun that, you know, lifelong dreams be. You right. can only do every now and then. I would imagine, you know, being the host of your own show has got to have some perks. Any lifelong dreams you've had fulfilled as a result of The Daily Show? I'd say no. I'm really lucky that all of my lifelong dreams, I guess, weren't fulfilled as a result of The Daily Show. In fact, I, I don't even know that I've had lifelong dreams in that way. You know, my only lifelong dream as a little kid was to own a supercar one day. I was like, my dream, I was like, ah. Yeah. But I was lucky that when I was in South Africa, I had the opportunity to buy my supercar. I was like, yeah. this is it, here I am, I've done it. You know, and then after a while I was just like, this is ridiculous, what am I doing? <laughs> but then beyond that, I've come to find my bucket list involves experiences with people who mean the most to me. That's all I'm looking for. One of my best experiences in life 
was going whitewater river rafting in Costa Rica with a group of friends. Mm -hmm. I mean, you want to learn your friends? (laughs) Go onto a river with them for the first time where half of them can't swim and you're in control of their lives? They'll let you know how they feel about you. That's an experience I'll never forget. You know, you learn about each other. During the pandemic, New York was shut down and then at some point, you know, people could leave their apartments and now here we were riding bicycles 26 miles around like Brooklyn and going, you know, up through Harlem and coming down through the Bronx. And we'd never done that before. And that was such a fun experience, a different way to explore a city, a different way to explore each other as human beings. It wasn't about getting somewhere, it was about going somewhere. And so those are things that, man, they've stuck with me a thousand times over. There's no celebrity encounter or fancy thing that can eclipse moments that I've gotten to share with the people in my life because they come with them a story and a veritas that nobody else will. And so if I've been through life with you and then get to see a new side of you because of something we're doing, that to me is the greatest bucket list experience of all. And I know you were really famous outside of the U.S. before you got to The Daily Show too, right? And I'm curious, you've listed a couple of really fun experiences you've had. Was there any one of them where after you had it, you were like, wow, I made it? Huh, that's an interesting one. I don't know if I ever think of it that way. I think fame comes with its upsides and its downsides. So I never think of it as like, I made it. I'll tell you one experience I had that was pretty wild. I was in South Africa. It was Nelson Mandela's centenary, you know, but he's obviously passed away, but it was 100 years of Nelson Mandela, and everyone had come together to put on this giant concert, you know, artists from all over the world, from Burner Boy to Ed Sheeran to, you know, Casper Njovest, everybody was there. Mm-hmm. And so I was hosting the event, but I'm in the crowd. No one really gets to see each other. Everything's moving so quickly. And so I'm in the crowd for the Beyonce Jay-Z performance. Because, I mean, you know, I want to watch the show yeah. as well. <laughs> you know, so I'm in the crowd. And at the end of the show, there's a moment where Jay-Z like comes out and then he's on like a platform that comes out of the ground. And he's just like rising up, as Jay-Z should, I guess. Exactly. You know, he's coming up out of the ground. And everyone is just watching this moment. And he performs, he performs, he performs. And then he was done his verse and it goes back to Beyonce. And then he pointed at me and he was like that. The people around me turned like, who the hell was he? And I didn't greet him like, Jay-Z! I was like, yeah, nice to see you again. And the people turned and they were like, wow, the guy. And that was maybe a moment where I was like, yeah, that was weird. That was a very weird moment. I was like, oh yeah, that's not a normal life. I was like, okay, yeah, maybe I have made it to that point. Yeah, I love that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, those are the memories. It's funny when you talk about the memories with your friends where you've gone together on a trip or something and something happens because you have these shared experiences. We do a similar thing at ExpenseBuy where we literally take the whole company abroad for a month oh, nice. every year, stick everyone together, force them to get comfortable with each other, and you just see people in a different light. As yes, Gosh, definitely. Yeah. You learn definitely. a whole new side of them. Yeah. Right, probably discover a serial killer or two. <laughs> you discover who really needs a lot of people <laughs> taking care of them. Oh, nice. <laughs> uh, What's the craziest thing you guys have done? Like, what do they take you out to do? So we actually just work from a different country every year for a Are month. Are you serious? Yeah. So <laughs> wow. I need to join your company. So, well, I started, there were 10 people, so it was a lot easier. Just 10 people we'd pick up, we'd go to like Thailand and we'd land there wow. and we'd figure it out. Okay. Now there's 150 people at the company. People can bring their families. It's a right, little right, bit right. more organized of an affair. But yeah, I mean, it's just a way to kind of force people into situations that you, you can't imagine. I'm like loving that. that. I remember yeah. my first time we went on this trip, 
we were in Thailand and the co-founder of the company was like, oh, there's this beach we were staying in some on some beach. And he's like, this other beach is even better. You just have to hike over this cliff. So we hike over the cliff with him. And then as soon as we get to the other side, the site went down, like our website went down. So he's like, I gotta go, bye. And none of us knew how to get home. So we literally oh, just man. chill on this beach until 5 a.m. until the tide went out and we could walk And so you could walk back around? <laughs> yeah. It's like, you learn something about people. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. I think something that stands out for me was we're usually there three or four weeks, and there's one night we call Fancy Night because Mm -hmm. when I started, we were probably 30-ish people, but back then we didn't have all the nice things. That year was my second year at Expensify. We realized we could rent out in Cambodia an entire temple to have like dinner. Yeah, and I remember coming in here and honestly, it kind of looked like we were arriving at a wedding or something because there was these beautiful candles everywhere. There's like rose petals everywhere. And then we just walk in and you know, you have a perfect view of one of the temples in Angkor Wat. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Everything's lit up. We have Cambodian dancers doing a performance for us. And I remember thinking, where the hell am I? What am I doing at this company? That sounds amazing. So being from South Africa, being in America, do you feel like a weight of representation or is it just pure pride that you feel? I definitely felt the weight when I first started on the show, specifically because when I left South Africa, many South Africans said, don't embarrass us. (laughs) So that generally made me feel like I shouldn't embarrass my people. Since then, no, it hasn't been a weight, but more of a pride, you know, more of an opportunity to represent. I have multiple badges that I'm wearing when I'm doing the show, and so I'm consciously and unconsciously thinking of these things. I'm going like, all right, you know, subconsciously going, what am I doing, who am I doing it for, or who is looking at me to do it for them, even though I may not be thinking of it in that way. And so the weight has thankfully lessened over time, and it's lifted, you know, slowly the burden has gotten lighter. But yeah, initially you have that thought because you go like, oh, I've got to do it for all of them. People would say like, if you fail, don't come home. I was like, well, okay. <laughs> all right. It's like my mom. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like growing up, the worst thing you could do was embarrass my parents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't be stupid in public. Talking about representation here, obviously there's been a huge push in Hollywood lately, especially with successes like Black Panther, right, right, Bling right. Empire, Crazy Rich Agents, et cetera, et cetera. What do you think of this move specifically focused on representation? Is Hollywood really changing its tune? Or are they kind of like, oh, look, another revenue stream. Let's go for it. I think it can be both. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's exactly what we want people to realize is you want Hollywood to go, ah, we have to change. And wow, this change could make us money. Because that's exactly what the thing can be. A lot of the time, things and ideas are sold in America as a zero-sum game. Oh, we have to get some diversity going. It's like, and that could lead to, oh, increased profits. Well, fantastic. Everybody's winning on this. We don't need to live in a world where it's an either-or, you know? So, yes, Hollywood can make TV shows and films that are more representative. And in that, they can gain more revenue. You know, people can grow up watching themselves in different shapes, forms, or ideas on screen. And that can just lead to a world where people feel like they have, you know, more of a grasp or even more opportunity. You don't yeah. grow up as a kid seeing yourself as a lawyer and you're like, I want, I want to be a lawyer. That can happen to you. And I think that's a wonderful thing. For myself, I look at that change in a really positive way. You know, I, I hope it keeps on expanding though beyond just the surface, you know, because yeah. you, you have what's on camera and then you have what's happening behind the camera. And that's a lot harder to change because what you're trying to do is encourage new growth within those ranks. Yeah. A lot of the time when people have these conversations, they think what you mean is like replace and get rid of, but I think of it as growth. 
You know, I genuinely think of it as growth. You're not getting rid of people. You're finding ways to grow a new pool of talent that previously hasn't been given access to any of these industries. Yeah, and maybe representation is just the first part, like phase one. And oh, so yeah. once you get enough different types of stories out there, then it's like, okay, let's dig another layer deeper, right? right. Let, let's tell it from very specific, you know, stories that have never been told. Mm -hmm. Get a little bit deeper into what different experiences look like depending on where we're coming from. Right, and at some point, in an ideal world, it gets to a point where you don't even notice it. It gets to a point, I'll tell you now, little kids, when they're watching Black Panther, they're not going like, wow, this is a lot of black people. <laughs> really? They're, they're just watching Black Panther. They yeah. don't think of it. The same way when I was a little kid watching Superman movies, I wasn't like, wow, there's a lot of white people in this movie. <laughs> I was just like, this is Superman. And that's what you, you come to understand is the younger generations grow up in a world where you're creating an idea of the world for them. And that gives us a wonderful opportunity to create a generation that's better than we are. Yeah. Where they don't feel like, oh, they're, they're being attacked by change. Change is terrifying. I don't care who you are and I don't care what anybody says, change is terrifying. But changing is necessary if societies want to grow and become better. And so, you know, when you're in it, it seems like the scariest thing you're ever going to do. Once you've gone through it, you realize, ah, it's not that bad. Yeah. I feel like Black Panther showed that it's not like only black people want to watch Black Panther. You make a good oh, yeah, movie, no. everybody wants to watch yeah. it. Absolutely. Yeah. I read somewhere that you said before that society doesn't need everyone to move forward in order to move forward, that as long as you have people at the forefront, they'll kind of drag society along. Can you talk about that a little bit? So what I meant by that is sometimes I feel like in society, we lie to ourselves or we've been told the lie that we need everybody to agree on something in order for it to be done. You know, we need everyone to agree yeah. on this thing. We need everyone to agree that women should have the right to vote. Then women can vote. We need everyone to agree that black people should be free. Then black people can... No, you actually don't. And that's not how societies have evolved. That's not how people have grown over time. The best way I can put it is, think of it this way, inventors. You don't need everyone to be trying to invent the light bulb. Yeah. Once the light bulb is invented, at some point people are going to be like, oh, these candles suck. I want to use a light bulb. The same thing goes for electric cars. You know, Elon Musk just doing his thing alone. Everyone's like, electric is stupid. Electric is not feasible. Electric, electric is like, okay, fine. He's like, I'm just going to keep on doing it. He didn't say the whole car industry needs to do it with him. Mm -hmm. He just did it. And now because of his successes, now the car industry is like, oh, we can't let him go alone. So we're all going to start doing it. And now the proliferation of electric cars is just going to be normal. And I think it's the same for society. Yeah. From reading your book, I feel like your mom was one of those people that was at the forefront, not really uh, conforming to what oh, society definitely. expected yeah. of her. Yeah, definitely. Did that create ruffles in your life, or was it exciting to be a part of, or was it scary because you've mentioned change is hard? Yeah, I think it was interesting, and it came with its pros and cons for me as a child. The pros are that you get to witness an adult and a parent who is constantly pushing the boundaries, constantly trying new things, constantly living against the idea of what the world wants them to be. That's fantastic to see. It also comes with the downsides, which is like, you may not feel as secure. You may, you may feel like life is tumultuous. You may be exposed to more conflict than usual because, you know, if you're with a mom who's not gonna succumb to what society wants a woman to be or a black woman to be, you're gonna experience or witness a lot more tension and conflict in life. And that's terrifying when you're a child. Yeah. And that sticks with you, you know, until you become an adult and you work through those issues. Mm -hmm. But on the whole though, she was definitely that kind of person. My mom doesn't live in a world of 
what am I allowed to do or what should I do, but rather what can I do and what do I want to try to do? Yeah. And so when you see that, I think it inspires you to think differently in that regard. It inspires you to keep going like, huh, I know we do everything like this, but what if we didn't? Just what if we didn't? Yeah. And that's what I'm always trying to think of for myself as a person. And I mean in everything, what I eat, how I think, how I live, everything. I go like, what if I didn't? I always question my programming because I realize that I only know what I know because I was taught it. And I think a lot of the time people think that there is a default way of thinking that, you know, they're like, well, that's the way it is. It's like, but is it though? Yeah, that's the way it is. It's like, but how do you know? Have you ever asked yourself about everything you believe in in life? You don't have to have like a crisis, you know, some existential crisis. And now I'm not asking you to like go on mushrooms and like question your existence, <laughs> but just ask yourself the whys. Small things. Why do you dress the way you do? Why do you eat the way you do? Why do you eat the food you do? Why do you, and then you just go like, because I always have, but why, but why, but why? Why do you support the team that you do? A lot of the time you just do because somebody did. But when you question and you ask yourself, what if I did it differently? Nine times out of 10, you find you don't want to, but that one time could be the catalyst of change in your life that you need to just switch things up and create something really amazing. Yeah, that really resonates with me. And it's honestly one of the reasons why I love working at Expensify because I think our CEO is always challenging us. It's like, why do we have to do it this way? Why are we doing it right. that way? Just because other people are doing it that way doesn't mean we have to, yes. right? right? And it's this idea of best practices with a capital BP versus just the best practices currently that we right. have, right? right? The best way. And internally, we sometimes say when something really sucks, it's our excuse to make it amazing. This DEI series is one example of that. We basically took a bunch of workshops, Puni and I and some of the other senior leaders. This is the format that we landed. Is like, look, we want to talk to really cool people with interesting stories and lived experiences and have those be the learning moments of what we're trying to accomplish here. Oh, I like that. I kind of feel like that's what your show is trying to do, like tell stories that people learn something along the way, but you kind of, you're almost like tricking them into it by making them laugh along the way. <laughs> well, I think I, I trick myself into doing it that way. I trick myself into living life through comedy. Because without comedy, life is just a miserable experience. Mm -hmm. Everything is painful in life. Just think about it for a moment. Life is a horrible thing to live. <laughs> have you ever thought about it? Every day you have to brush your teeth. I know. Every single day. What a horrible, miserable it's life we're living. It's worse to have cavities. Yeah, but just the fact that you have to brush your teeth. Huh? You yeah. have to eat. If you don't eat, you get hunger pangs. Horrible existence. You have to brush your hair. You have to bathe. Otherwise, your body rots. You have to look before you cross the road or a car will smash your body. I mean, like... What a horrible way we live. <laughs> Life is a horrible thing. It's horrible. So without comedy, I go like, why would I want to exist in this madness? And okay. so the comedy is that thing that helps me process that information and just be like, yeah, you know what? This whole thing is ludicrous and ridiculous and it's fun and it's interesting. And so I'm going to try and enjoy that a little bit more. And that's what I'm trying to do on the show is I go like, hey, man, America is a place where people use politics as a sport and, you know, they use it to try and, like, destroy each other's lives and people go manic about it. It's like, you can also laugh about it. I come from a country where my mom's generation didn't have freedom. It's not even like I can go, like, oh, very far back. I wasn't even born into a free country, you know? But we learn how to laugh. doesn't mean that you're not trying to change the things. Yeah. doesn't mean you're not trying to do things. But man, you can't forget that you're a human being while you're going through this experience. Yeah. And so that's what laughter always does for me. You gotta enjoy the ride, right? Yeah. It's the only ride you're gonna have. Yeah. I feel like that's why people love shows like yours, like satire news, because the news itself is just so devastating. Oh, constantly. yeah. Yeah. It's like you gotta find a way to find the funny in it. Yes. And they designed it to be devastating. That's the thing. Because in America, it's about ratings. So they want to tell you 
about the thing that's going to devastate your day. Yeah. Most of the things are not devastating your day. They'll find the thing if they can't. <laughs> if nothing's happening in your neighborhood, they'll find it in your city. If it's not in your city, they'll find it in your state. If it's not in your state, in your country. If it's not in your country, they'll tell you about another country. You're like, you know, everything's good in America right now. Well, look at what happened in Bangladesh. And you're like, oh, now I have to be sad. Most of the time, things are going generally well. Doesn't mean we shouldn't try to make things better. Sure. Yeah. But I cannot live in a constant state of despair. I don't think it's healthy. I feel like when Ebola was happening, that was the thing. It was like there wasn't something else to try. Oh, yeah. So it was like Ebola, Ebola. Yes. And yeah. then suddenly, like, no more Ebola. Yes, like, what exactly. Happened to Ebola? Yeah, it's just like, you know, <laughs> it's interesting enough to make you scared, so we'll use it. Yeah, yeah. So we talked about live rich, we talked about have fun. So the last life goal is save the world. And what we mean by save the world is not virtue signaling, it's more of like, let's pick a really hard problem and let's throw our weight behind it. Is there anything like that for you? Oof, what isn't like that for me? <laughs> Education's a big one. Just in how education hasn't evolved in like a hundred years, we still teach kids they're gonna go work on a factory, yeah. you know, assembly line. It's wild to me. Yeah, it's probably one of the biggest ones. You know, policing, we still think of it as a mechanism to generate income for cities, which is a conflict of interest. And I think that causes a lot of the turmoil that America goes through, because if you have a system that is designed to protect and serve, but then it also has to generate some sort of income, then it no longer is only interested in protecting and serving. And so now you put police in a shitty situation where you're like, you better bring in this much money. And then you're also saying to the same cops, but don't stop people. And they're like, what the hell am I supposed to do? And so I think a lot of these systems are the things I try to question in life. Education's a big one for me, because I think on the ground, the more you can put into that, no one should have to pay a price to be intelligent. Why are we even depriving ourselves of that? Why would anyone want to live in a society where people are not learned? Nobody wins. And so I always think to myself of how much my life is different because my grandmother and grandfather were lucky enough to get a little bit of education that then they could use to improve my mom's life. And she got a little bit more education, which she then used to improve my life. And I got a little more education and I used that to improve the rest of my family and my community's life. And so I see the difference that that makes. I think you have a foundation as well, yeah. right? And it's dealing with education as well? Yeah, but philanthropy cannot solve the world's issues. Mm -hmm. Philanthropy is like trying to stop the rain from hitting your house and all you've got is an umbrella. It's yeah. nice that you're doing it, but it's not going to work. It's like treating the symptom and not figuring and out And not the even the whole symptom as yeah. well. I think of my foundation, you know, like a little scout, goes out to investigate and discover things and then bring the information back mm -hmm. to the mothership that can then navigate and make a big change. With my foundation, what we do is we partner up with a few schools. We try and give them the tools and the resources they need so that kids can get to a better place. A lot of the time, kids are just hungry. Nothing to do with their intelligence, they're just hungry. Sometimes they're just cold. Sometimes they just don't have a computer. And so we try and give them all of those tools so that they can continue teaching these kids. And then what we do is we try and implement new ideas to see what could improve schooling. What happens if you include a therapist in every school? What happens? You notice a big jump out of nowhere. And you're like, wow. And you replicate that in a few other schools, you see the difference. Mm -hmm. You say, you know what? Let's tell the government about this. And it's up to them to do something because we don't have the resources to put a therapist in every school. Yeah. In your book, you talked about how you used to have this business selling CDs. You were kind of like a little business magnate in your community, in your school. But you said that you couldn't have done that if your friend didn't gift you the CD burner so that you could do it. Right. You compared it to, okay, you can teach a man to fish, but it doesn't help if you don't give him the fishing rod. Yes. Can you talk about that idea? Well, I think... We've been tricked in society into believing that everybody can 
do it if they just put their back into it. <laughs> Everybody. Come on, just work hard and you can do it. What we don't think about is how many tools and leg ups we give people along the way. So for instance, if a child is given access to a good education and if a child isn't, that's already a tool that we've given them. So you can say to both kids when they finish school, now do your own thing, but what school did they get to finish? What lessons have they learned in life? If you come from a family that's rich, there's a good chance you're gonna know how to use money. You're gonna understand money. You're gonna have access to a world of money that maybe somebody else who's not from that world doesn't. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not begrudging you because you come from that. I just think we shouldn't now make it seem like everyone has just equal footing to just do. Mm -hmm. Knowledge is a powerful thing to just do. And so if I say to you, come on, both start a company, but you have the knowledge of how to do certain things, you have a better chance of succeeding. And so what I learned in life is we think of giving people the opportunity to do things, but we don't think of giving them the tools in order for them to fully maximize those opportunities. And that's really where success comes from, creating a world where people can actually utilize a tool that they've been given to access an opportunity. You see it in the smallest ways and in the biggest ways. People who have access to a loan have a better chance of starting a business. People who have access to a loan that has a favorable interest rate have an even better chance of having a successful business. And those are some of the things that I think people don't seem to realize when they say, oh, I started from nothing. Yes, but what was your nothing that you started from? And a lot of the time that story is really different. And like I say, I don't begrudge anybody. Everyone starts from the place that they have to start from. But I do think we can do a better job of acknowledging that, hey, we can try and give people a leg up here or a leg up there to get them to a certain place. Actually, everything that you've just said just now, it's basically equality versus equity. What you're talking about is this idea of equity, recognizing where people started, and certain people have opportunities and privileges that other people don't as a result of many different factors. Right. What I'm curious about is, especially in the US, we love this idea that we did it all on our own. It's 100% our effort. We've had no help from anyone else. You know, we did it, or I did it, I would say. So my question for you is, how do we have this conversation of equity without people who are in power or who have those opportunities feel like that something is being taken away from them when in the US people refuse to acknowledge that equity exists. The hardest thing in getting over that obstacle is understanding the pride attached to the idea of the individualistic win in America. You know, it's very much what America's founded on. This one man did it. Mm -hmm. And that's how America even tells its history stories, you know? Yeah. That's what happened here. It's like, George Washington did this. He was on that boat. You saw him. It's like, who was rowing the boat? Yeah, that doesn't matter. He was on that boat. He was crossing that river. Abraham Lincoln freed them. Well, who did he develop the thoughts and ideas with? That's not the point. He freed them. And a lot of the time, that's the notion. And I understand why. America is a country that had to create these stories and narratives around heroes, which is a wonderful story to tell because it inspires a nation to become better than it is. What I think you then lose, though, unfortunately, is the story behind the story. I always used to be intrigued by that when I would watch, like, for instance, the Super Bowl, the NBA playoffs, or whatever it was. And there'd always be like the player that they would talk to. The player, you, you did this, you did this. And I was like, well, well there were a bunch of other people who, who passed the ball. Tom Brady, you did it. I'm like, what, the guy who caught the ball? The guy had to catch the ball that he threw. What happened to that person? 
in that, if you're not careful, you create a world where people literally have tunnel vision for only the most glamorous position, the most powerful position, or just the position that is deemed to be the most important. If we can get to a place where we go, hey, there's nothing wrong with trying to be the hero, but we can also live in a world where we celebrate the team of the heroes. Celebrate Clark Kent for being Superman. Congratulations, Superman. But let's be honest, without your parents, you wouldn't have done this. Somebody had to feed that baby so that it could go and (laughs) lift mountains and then save people crashing in helicopters, right? Yeah. So then Superman wasn't self-made. Somebody had to put Superman in a little ship to send it to Earth to save it from the explosion on Krypton. So Superman is not self-made. And so if we can live in a society where we celebrate all of those nameless, faceless people Mm -hmm. who are actually part of the team that get the person to that place, then I think we can grow in a more equitable society. Yes, Neil Armstrong is on the moon, but who are all those people who got him to the moon? You know, all the engineers, all the people. And I'm not saying you have to take it away and be like, Neil, you didn't do it. No, fantastic, you're still an astronaut. But let's also celebrate the fact that this was a team effort. Those pictures that we take, we should also consider them because it's not that person alone. They may be the figurehead, but as a society, we're trying to get somewhere. And so when you expand that outward, you come to understand that we have to start acknowledging the fact that we are all dominoes affecting each other. At the end, there may be the big domino that gets the biggest shine or the, you know, the most effect, but we are all the little pieces that are stacking together that create this effect. And so I think the more we celebrate that, from maybe the time kids are really young, go team, 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 and you celebrate you're a good captain, your team is what you're trying to bring together. Yeah. I think hopefully then we can live in a world where people understand that, yes, You can say that you are self-made, but really you are always going to be society-made, you're always going to be community-made. And so then you understand that you're only going to be as strong as your society or your community is in trying to get to that made place. So lastly, I suppose, one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you specifically, Trevor, is because you have experience living in multiple countries that are grappling with issues of race. And I think you've said in the past that in South Africa, people are a little bit better at talking openly and honestly about race. So why do you think that is and what can we learn from that? Um, why do I think that is? I think it's because the racial makeup of South Africa is different. You know, we have a population that's 90% black. It was easy for the country to say, hey, we need to have a conversation about what happened. How did it happen? Why did it happen? America has never been forced to do that. I think it's because throughout history, many Americans have always had the idea that it will come with it some sort of racial reckoning. There'll be this night when all of a sudden everybody's punished for their sins, when in fact it's really just closure. In order to begin to treat the symptoms or the cause of something, you have to acknowledge what made it that way. So when you go to the doctor, they ask you for your history, your medical history, and the reason they do that is so that they can figure out how best to treat you. Mm -hmm. They ask you about your grandparents' health. Your grandparents have a history of diabetes. Why is that necessary to know? Because it could affect you today. And so in talking about these things, I think America could be in a better place because then people of today can say, ah, I see why we're here now. Here's a classic example. We're in Los Angeles. A lot of people go like, man, the traffic in LA is terrible. The traffic, a lot of people don't realize that part of the reason traffic in LA is so terrible is because of racism. People be like, what are you talking about? Well, the way the highways were developed in LA weren't designed around the best possible ways to make a highway system. Mm -hmm. They were designed around which neighborhoods would be least disrupted by the highway. And so when the planners came in and said, we're gonna make a highway system, 
We want to get people from here to here as quickly as possible. They actually found that you want the roads to go into different places and different spaces so that people can get how they need. It's like a spider web. You want to do it as efficiently as possible. But as soon as one of those highways was going through Beverly Hills, people in Beverly Hills were like, no, we don't want a highway here. And so then the highway got moved. And then it moved to an area that was predominantly black. And then they said, we're building on a highway here. But they didn't give them the option to say no. They said no, and they're like, well, you don't have an option. And all of a sudden, what happens? That highway splits that community. And now you live on the good side of the highway, the bad mm -hmm. side of the highway. Now you live in a place where your neighborhood has lost value because there's a highway on top of it. Yeah. And so you've lost inherent wealth. And the wealth in Beverly Hills continues to grow. Even just understanding that. I'm not saying you built the highway. Well, nobody here built that highway. Right. But you can at least go like, man, is that what happened? And now we're paying the price for it. Now I sit in traffic for two hours. Just because someone in Beverly Hills didn't want one lane of highway, two lanes of highway, I now understand. And so I think that's what the difference is, is understanding. There's still a big challenge on the other side of understanding. It doesn't mean yeah. you fix it immediately. But understanding the root cause of a problem is how you can then begin to figure out how to fix that problem. The difference I've seen in America versus in South Africa is in America, people do not want to talk about it because they think you're somehow reliving it or right. rehashing it or right. wanting to create a new conflict from it. Yeah. And I'm like, no, it's not like that. Imagine if you carried that attitude everywhere with you. Imagine yeah. if you went to that same doctor and they said, has your grandfather ever had a problem with the heart disease? And you're like, why are you trying to bring up heart disease, man? Why yeah. won't you let this go? Come on, man, it's over now. Heart disease is done in my family. You just shut up about it. Always want to talk about heart disease. <laughs> And you'll be like, okay. And then you die of a heart attack. And you're like, oh, what happened? Why is grandfather had a heart disease and he didn't want to talk about it. So that's pretty much where you end up. It's funny how you mentioned that racist history affects all of us now. For example, in LA, it reminds me of how Ruth Bader Ginsburg, when she was trying to get people to care about sexism, she showed that it affects men. Yes. And that's how she got people to care. Right. So exactly. It affects all of us. We just exactly. don't realize it directly. Exactly. Thanks so much for taking the time. I really enjoyed talking to you today, Trevor. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Uh, this was a really, really wonderful conversation. And I'd say maybe my favorite big-ass table that I've sat at. So. <laughs> the long-ass table. Oh, yeah. Long-ass <laughs> table. That's true. That yeah. is very true. My favorite long-ass table. Thank you. Both. <laughs> Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on Live Rich, Have Fun, Save the World for our first ever long-ass table talk with Joni Wang, Puneet Lath, and Trevor Noah. I'm your host, Monty Bernard. If you're an individual or small business owner who's looking for a thoughtful way to start a similar conversation at your own organization, head to expensify.com slash LAT to watch the video and access the discussion questions.